Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon. And we are here to bring to you those issues that really pertain to our clients, which are employers that are uh, managing group health plans. And so today we're going to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. So uh, let's start off, Chase. Why don't you just give us a bit of a new background on the new law? Yeah, so this is a new law, but it's a few weeks old now. Uh, So it's probably been out there. Employers are probably familiar with it a little bit. But to recap, um, on August 16th, so just last month, President Biden signed this Inflation Reduction Act into law. And the president's signature came just days after the Senate approved the law by a vote of 51 to 50. So uh, Vice President Kamala Harris uh, got to cast the tie-breaking vote there. And then the House approved it by a vote of 220 to 207. So it narrowly passed, and uh, much of the law relates to non-benefits provisions. Just so people know what we're talking about, you may have heard of the major tax changes that relates to a 15% corporate alternative minimum tax and an excise tax on stock buybacks. And so those are getting some headlines and, and uh, may be more familiar. We, we obviously won't address those here. Uh, since we focus more on the on the benefits aspects. Yeah, there were just a few benefit provisions that c- could impact things. So let's just start off on the enhanced premium tax credit, because that's something that certainly employers would be familiar with as a result of the ACA's employer mandate. Yeah, so this is, this is an interesting one. So to help explain this, let's, let's take a step back. The Affordable Care Act, or the ACA, uh, created a refundable premium tax credit um, and, and this is to help in individuals pay for health insurance in the exchanges. But that premium tax credit is available on a sliding scale basis for individuals and families who are enrolled in an exchange health plan. Sometimes we call those marketplace plans. Those are the same thing, exchange and marketplace. And then those individuals who are not eligible for other qualifying coverage or for affordable employer-sponsored health insurance plans that provide minimum value. That's where we get the connection with the employer mandate. Um, ARPA, which went into effect a, a few years ago, that expanded the ACA premium tax credit for taxable years 2021 and 2022. And just to help explain those premium tax credits, um, the, the ACA limits the credit to taxpayers with household income between 100 and 400% of the federal poverty line who purchase insurance through an exchange. ARPA came in, and again, this is for 2021 and 22, ARPA eliminated the upper income limit for eligibility, and it increased the amount of the premium tax credit by decreasing in all income bands the percentage of household income that individuals have to contribute for exchange coverage. So there's some numbers there as far as the adjusted percentage range. Uh, but just know that this really extends those um, those changes uh, through 2025. Right. So what that did is really say we only want, depending on your income level, to pay X amount of your income out on premiums. And so those were the numbers that were adjusted 
Um, and then it eliminated, of course, from an overall income perspective, people who could access that. But the limitations were still obviously on that uh, percentage of income. So at some point, it's really not going to be applicable um, in, right. in, you know, in terms of the premium cost. But it, again, with our clients being predominantly employers, um, what is the impact of this provision on employers? Yeah, it, it feels a step removed from the employers because we're talking about qualification for the premium tax credit for individuals and families. And, and all that happens on the state health insurance exchanges in the marketplaces. But to bring it back for employers, because applicable large employers, those we sometimes hear those referred to as ALEs, and those are with employers with 50 or more full-time employees, they potentially face shared responsibility penalties or employer mandate penalties if full-time employees receive premium tax credits. So expanded eligibility for the credits here could increase the penalty exposure for ALEs that do not offer affordable minimum value coverage to all full-time full employees. Uh, so it might impact how an employer evaluates the risk of not af offering affordable coverage as it relates to those penalties. I've been on several phone calls the, just the past two weeks talking about this idea of employer mandate strategies um, part of that is probably because we recently received the updated affordability calculations. And remember, whether coverage is affordable also impacts the uh, employer's potential penalties under the mandate. But it's just that idea that if you're taking an, an approach of not offering coverage or you're excluding a portion of your employee base from this offer with the, with the idea that you're willing to take the risk of the penalty, and that is a strategy, right? This could change the analysis for you. Same thing if you're only offering a skinny or a limited plan, or you're lowering your employer contribution such that you might not satisfy the affordability provision. Again, with the idea that you're willing to take the risk of the smaller penalty B that would come with unaffordable coverage, uh, this could change the analysis. So um, we've also seen employers that maybe don't offer coverage because they have higher wage earners and therefore believe that the workers won't be able to qualify for a premium tax credit due to their income. And that's part of their analysis. Uh, but now with, with that upper limit increasing a little bit, um, it, that strategy could be in peril as well. So again, it's just that notion that it will be slightly easier now for employees to qualify for a premium tax credit. And again, going all the way to 2025, whereas ARPA just limited that through 2022. Right. Um, so let's move on to the next Inflation Reduction Act provision. Uh, this one relates to Medicare prescription drug cost reductions, and that's, uh, that's obviously going to be an important one for some. Yeah. So on this one, uh, several cost reduction measures will benefit enrollees in Medicare Part D prescription drug coverage uh, beginning in... Um, 2023 cost sharing for insulin will be capped at $35 uh, per month. Um, annual Part D out-of-pocket prescription drug costs will be capped at $2,000 starting in 2025. Um, and for the first time, HHS, that's the Department of Health and Human Services at a federal level, uh, will be authorized and actually required to negotiate certain Medicare drug prices with manufacturers beginning in 2026. And um, starting in 2023, manufacturers have to pay Medicare a rebate if average prices of certain drugs increase faster than inflation. So, so, so for our, you know, for uh, our audience base, what are some key takeaways from that? 
Yeah, so most of that, again, relates directly to Medicare. Um, and at a high level, because the legislation does not include comparable prescription drug cost reductions for private plans, um, there is some concern that reduced costs for Medicare enrollees will result in increased costs for employer plans and participants as price increases are shifted to private plans to make up for lost revenue. Um, so we've seen some talk and some chatter in the industry about that impact. In addition, the improvement to, to Medicare Part D drug coverage may affect the analysis of whether employer-sponsored prescription drug coverage is quote unquote creditable and creditable means that it's at the, the employer coverage is at least as good as the standard Part D prescription drug coverage. So employers will have to go back and review that closely to ensure they're, they're still considered creditable. Um, this won't really take effect for a few years, so no immediate rush. And I bring that up because we do have uh, the October 14th deadline coming up to distribute Medicare Part D notices to employees. That's right around the corner here for employers. And uh, this will not impact this year's analysis, but just something to keep on the radar down the road. And I would assume, obviously, if it's a fully insured plan, then the carrier would be um, assisting with that credible analysis, credible coverage analysis. And same as if you have a PBM, they would assist with that as well. So we don't expect employers are actually out there doing that analysis themselves, but they need to make sure that whether it's the fully insured or self-insured that somebody is uh, making sure that that analysis is being conducted. Right. Good points. We'll talk about the provision relating to insulin and the cap on the out-of-pocket spending under Medicare. How is that going to impact HSA eligibility? Yeah, so I mentioned that there, there's actually two separate provisions relating to insulin. And I, I mentioned the first one that, that the law includes a $35 cap on out-of-pocket spending on insulin for Medicare beneficiaries. Um, but there was talk about extending that over to the private side, uh, but the application of that insulin cap to the private market was opposed by uh, in the Senate. So a vote to retain the application uh, didn't quite get those the 60 votes necessary to overcome that objection. So, so that $35 cap on spending does not apply to private plans, such as you know, employer-sponsored group health plans. But the second provision is more relevant in the employer context. Um, specifically, the law contains a provision that states that plans will not lose their high deductible health plan uh, status. That's the qualified status to pair the plan with an HSA option uh, by reason of failing to have a deductible for certain insulin products. Um, this provision is effective for plan years beginning after December 31st, 2022. So starting with 1123 plans and going forward. And really this provision uh, codifies and slightly expands IRS guidance that um, sort of already allowed this, that allows high deductible health plans to provide insulin uh, on a no deductible or low deductible basis uh, without adversely affecting HSA eligibility. So for really that's the insight. It's, this is not a big change since IRS guidance already basically allowed it. It was just making it completely formal with congressional approval via this new law. And remember that that provision takes a, a effect for uh, one one twenty three going forward. Well, and, and we certainly wish that they would extend that same kind of guidance and uh, exempt exceptions uh, in other ways for HSA eligibility, don't we? But we'll- Yes, uh, always. It's always <laughs> nice to have more flexibility with those rules. It's so restrictive. Uh, 
That it is. It is. Uh, what about the provisions that relate to IRS enforcement funding? Yeah, now this has received a lot of attention. I thought it'd be fun to talk a little bit about here. Um, I've even seen it as a scare tactic uh, to win broker services. So, uh, but basically, the, the act includes $80 billion. That's a billion with a B in supplemental IRS funding. Um, how will Congress afford that? How do we as taxpayers afford that? Um, as with other enacted laws, the Congressional Budget Office or the CBO um, sort of balances the budget to make sure that it it's, can be paid for. And their estimate is that the increase in funding and enforcement that will come out of this will in turn increase federal tax receipts. And they estimate that at $204 billion over 10 years. Wow. So they're basically just saying, look, this is an investment that will pay for itself. You know, if it's only costing us 80 billion and we can turn it into 204 billion over 10 years, um, that's how they're, they're saying the fund it. But where does that 204 billion come from? It's enforcement, right? So you would assume that there's going to be uh, more. So looking at that, the, 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 the actual IRS use of that 80 billion, uh, roughly 50% would be allocated to enforcement. And then the other 50% would go to services and systems modernization. Uh, so you think about the old paper trails um, and, and doing audits on paper and uh, the IRS going to maybe modernize some of their systems. But overall, it's projected that the IRS could increase the size of its workforce by as much as 50% over the next 10 years. Um, and with some increased staffing expected to support greater examination and collection activity. So that's the proje projection. The law itself says that enforcement funds are intended for a couple of uh, basically four things. First, determining and collecting owed taxes. Second, providing legal and litigation support. Third, conducting criminal investigations, including, again, investigative technology. So getting back to that idea of modernizing a little bit. And then fourth, providing digital asset monitoring and compliance activities and enforcing criminal statutes related to violations of internal revenue laws and other financial crimes. So that's the directive, um, which may cause people's heart rates to go up, right? Like, cause all of that sounds like the IRS is coming, the IRS is coming. Um, so as far as actual statements on this, um, uh, mid last month, mid August, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, and remember the Treasury, the IRS is actually part of the bigger Treasury Department. So the Treasury Secretary technically leads the IRS in that way, even though there's a, a head of the IRS Janet Yellen as the Treasury Secretary is really the one giving directives here. But she sent a memorandum to the IRS commissioner. And in that memo, uh, Secretary Yellen basically told the IRS that the additional IRS enforcement funding should not be used to increase audits of small businesses or individuals with incomes under $400,000. Instead, it should be used, and this is a quote, to end the two-tiered tax system where most Americans pay what they owe, but those at the top of the distribution often do not. Uh, again, that's a quote. Uh, but I think it's fair to say, and, and many observers would believe or would jump in on this as well, that the increased enforcement funding could potentially lead to increased audits of small businesses and lower income individuals too. Um, and of course, how much this increased funding will improve IRS's efficiency in various areas also remains to be seen. 
So just because they have money doesn't mean they're going to be efficiently using it and, and efficiently finding um, you know, violations. But it's a lot to think about there and, and we won't really know until we see that, that additional enforcement or until we hear something more. Sometimes the IRS or the Department of Labor, when we talk about enforcement, they will come out with a statement or a clarification on a point of law or a, or a particular requirement in advance of real heavy um, enforcement on it. And so we'd hope that would be the case here. Uh, but it's definitely something that catches our eye and, and has been talked about quite a bit is this additional IRS funding. Yes, I, I don't think that's welcome to many people. That's not something they wanted to hear, certainly. Um, but uh, we appreciate you going through this. Every time there's one of these large bills that gets rolled up, we want to know, you know what, what impact there is on employers. And certainly you'll want to check with your tax experts because there are certainly things in there that could impact you from a tax perspective. But from an employee benefits perspective, at least it's nice to know there is limited impact and certainly of a negative sort. So um, thank you for walking us through this. And Chase, as we like to say, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining us today.